0: You know, if you're if you're thinking about not hiring a remote, you are pretty much limiting yourself to say like a 50-mile radius around your the locations that you have. And you know, that really, really limits the pool of candidates that you could possibly choose from when it comes to picking up developers that to join your company and work on your apps.
1: Welcome to Building for the Next Billion, the podcast that discusses the most prominent trends in software development with leading technologists from around the globe. I'm your host, Justin Byrne. We're coming at you from our podcast studio here in Andela's New York City headquarters. If you're not familiar with Andela, we build high-performing engineering teams with the most talented developers from tech hubs across Africa. Now let's get to today's show. In this episode, I'm joined by John Chan, a developer on the Q&A team at Stack Overflow. I'm assuming everybody listening is probably pretty familiar with Stack Overflow, but if not, they are the world's largest website for developers. They function as a question and answer resource for professional and enthusiast developers, so if you haven't done so already, I highly recommend you check them out when you're done with the show. John is also the founder of Bento, an online platform that coaches self-taught developers through the best coding tutorials on the web. He is passionate about education, remote work, and diversity and inclusion in the tech industry, and speaks frequently on these topics while traveling around the world and working remote. He graduated from NYU with a degree in philosophy, as most software developers do, but he'll tell you a little bit about that later. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Justin, for having me. Yeah, no, you're welcome. So uh, where exactly are you right now? I know you're uh, constantly on the move and taking advantage of Stack Overflow's remote policy.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I'm, a, I'm actually currently in Los Angeles, just visiting family. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm actually typically based in New York City and Bright. Before I was here in LA, I was in Denver, and then I'll be heading back in New York in about two weeks, back in New York before I again. So, still on the move, definitely.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. And I, I know that according to Stack Overflow's 2017 developer survey results, uh, 53.3% of respondents said that remote options are their top priority. So, I would, I would guess that you would consider yourself part of that majority.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, with Me traveling around a lot of the times like remote has been a really big part of my professional life, not really actually just with Stack Overflow, but pretty much my entire professional life. Before this, I was a management consultant. I was taking like four flights every single week. And, you know, to be able to continue to travel and do all uh, all the different benefits to, to remote work while I'm at Stack Overflow and all the other things that I'm doing, it's definitely a big priority for me.
1: So why do you think that developers value remote work so highly? And why do you think it's important for the industry to offer those types of options?
0: So there's a a lot of different reasons, I think, why developers would um, value remote work. I mean, just thinking about being able to work from home, for example, you're basically getting a private office, right? We were talking about developers that really need a quiet space um, to code, like you get to work from home. Um, That's probably the quietest office you'll get, depending on what your house is like and you know you don't have to move or relocate if you want a particular opportunity i mean i think when it comes to remote work and why developers value it so much is because it really just it all comes down to flexibility really it gives you the flexibility to um you know if if something is happening with your family that you can stay around there if there are opportunities somewhere else you get to you know you don't have to pick up your entire life and move somewhere if you want to customize your workspace you can you know for me When I joined Stack Overflow, I was and still am one of the youngest engineers in the company. A lot of the people at Stack Overflow decide to work from home or work remotely because they're starting families. In my case, I'm not in that situation. So, you know, for me at Stack Overflow, I was able to take advantage of the situation and, you know, actually travel. Just as an example, like in, I think, August 2015 or so, I actually was the first person to try to go nomadic at Stack Overflow, too. I basically booked four one-way flights, one from New York to Germany, from Germany to Hong Kong, Taipei to Los Angeles, and then Los Angeles to New York. And I was able to work full-time the entire time. And that kind of flexibility is something that I personally value and that I know a lot of other people, especially developers, value know a lot. It really just affords you a huge amount of flexibility in how you work.
1: Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Have you seen any type of uptick in the quality of your work just due to, you know, being in different environments and sparking different creativity and maybe collaborating with other developers from around the world that you maybe wouldn't have gotten exposure to if you were sitting in an office somewhere?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, of course, a lot of value in being in an office and being with coworkers that you, you know, build relationships with, but you can still get that with the road. And it's, you know, being able to have the flexibility to travel and also just really be master of your universe when it comes to how you want to work is going to make your productivity levels go you know through the roof far more than i think you would um if you were in an office against your will necessarily or if you didn't really want to be there um you know when you're talking about when i talk about when thinking about travel for example like while i was doing this sort of round the world trip i was able to meet a lot of different developers and sort of see what it was like and other technology communities, you know, outside of New York City. And you're starting to see that more and more people are embracing remote. When when you're seeing that, like, hey, there's video hangouts, hey, there's going to be um, chat like Slack, for example, you'll get to have a much more densely connected technology community that lets you work and get ideas from other people. In Asia, for example, I was able to go out to tech startups that are out there where it felt very similar to what it was like in New York City a few years ago. And being able to talk to them about what unique challenges that they're facing and how we were picking up those different ideas in like New York and San Francisco has always been very interesting. You're even seeing in like the annual user survey that we recently did for Stack Overflow that other areas of the world besides North America and Asia are also embracing remote work. Um, Like Africa, for example, Um, I think from the survey and the results, we saw that people were working the vast majority of the time remotely twice more than the average for the rest of the world. Um, there's a it's extraordinarily high um, proportion of people that are actually working remote in, say, Kenya and Nigeria, where I know Nandela also has developers too.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. And in terms of like visiting those those emerging markets in order to to understand them, um, I know you mentioned a little bit about visiting some of the tech hubs in China and how that was really beneficial for your work. So I don't know, one of the things that we kind of talk about a lot here at Andela is that you're not able to build products for emerging markets unless you actually see how those emerging markets function firsthand. Is that something you found to be true as well?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, a really great example of this, like go, just going back to the Asian example, I spent a lot of my time in Taipei. Um, if you just take a look at the way that the, the way that UIs are built, for example, um, you you take a look at a, a lot of um, Western apps. It's very minimalistic, for example. But if you take a look at a lot of other apps that are in um, Asia, it's very very dense. If you go to the homepage of say, like Yahoo, for example, it's very very dense, and there's a good reason for that. It's because of the way that the language is is, is sort of built. If you want to create a sentence uh, that conveys convey some information in English and put it on a website is it will take up a lot of real estate on, you know, a device or a website. But if you're talking about Asia, where an entire word is basically just one character, you actually don't really need to worry about that too much. You can express much more and much smaller space. You can cram a lot of information there. Being able to understand why that is the case by being on the ground and talking to people about well, why do your apps and your applications look and feel different from the ones that are in other areas? It really comes down to being able to talk to those people, understanding what their cultures are like, especially in rural or in other areas of the world that aren't like the United States.
1: Clearly, there's a there's a big benefit for having the developer be flexible in terms of their remote work and being able to travel around and visit these different places. So what type of benefits do you think that it, that it offers the employer in terms of the work that they're getting from from the developers that they're allowing to work remote.
0: Yeah, on the flip side there, there's plenty of uh, benefits for the actual employer. So, you know, at Stack Overflow, besides um, being a question and answer website, we also try to help people that are hiring developers um, find those developers. And one of the really big things that we talk a lot about is what the benefits of remote work are for the employers too, let alone for the developers. Um, The first one is just a bigger pool of talent to access. You know, if you're if you're thinking about not hiring a remote, you are pretty much limiting yourself to say like a fifty mile radius around your the locations that you have. And you know, that really, really limits the pool of candidates that you could possibly choose from when it comes to picking up developers that to join your company and work on your apps. This is especially the case in extremely dense, very competitive um, markets like you know san francisco and new york city but if you were to say go remote you're no longer bound by that anymore you can now hire the best talent from pretty much anywhere in the world or anywhere that you're willing to um, sort of extend your reach that's the number one thing it just gives you a much uh a much bigger pool and greater access to better developers um just by taking away the requirement that they're, you know, within sort of driving or commuting distance to a particular office. Another thing there, and something that I sort of mentioned before, when it comes to that flexibility for the developer and sort of thinking about how you best work, it's something that's great for managers, too. It, a lot of places still think of how, uh, how to measure the productivity of a developer by the number of hours that they're sitting in their, at their desk, right? And I think that more and more employees are starting to realize that maybe that's not the best way to go about measuring their performance. What you really want to focus is on the results that they have instead. And, you know, by sort of just taking away that requirement and being remote, it forces managers to sort of think about, well, what are they actually producing when I'm not necessarily there over their shoulder? um, Thinking about, are they actually coding? What are they actually doing? You focus much more on results than you would on how much time um, they're actually in front of the desk.
1: Totally. And, you know, it's not, you know, remote is not the end all be all for everybody. Everybody's got different business goals. And obviously, this model is not going to work for everybody. And and what's interesting that I've seen recently is this kind of growing divide between remote work Mm -hmm. and centralized headquarters, like some of the big tech giants of the world, like Google are creating these elaborate campuses Mm -hmm. that basically have everything that an employee needs to live there, they could live at their offices. And then there's other companies 100% remote with no centralized headquarters. So they're kind of seeing huge divide between one extreme and the other. Do you think that there's a happy medium between the two? Do you think that it's just based on the specific company and their their specific goals? Or how do you go about looking at remote work across the entire industry?
0: Like you said, it's a spectrum, right? Like there there is one end of this extreme, which is like, everybody has to be in the office from these times and try to create a universe that lets them Uh, so that they never need to leave the office. Like, that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, like you mentioned, there are companies here that are completely remote. They don't even have a physical space. Um, For Stack Overflow, we're somewhere in the middle. You know, when we say somewhere in the middle, that's still pretty far. uh, That's more remote than a lot of other companies that currently exist. We have three locations around the world, uh, one in New York, which is our headquarters, one in Denver, um, and one in London. So even though we are remote, we actually still provide the opportunity for people to be in a physical office that they want to, with a lot of the same amenities that you'd expect of another technology company um, that provides all of those really great benefits that you hear about. I think it really depends on how the culture um, of that particular company is, and that usually is an extension of your leadership, right? I mean, For us, Stack Overflow started as a remote company. Our founders were remote, and our first few engineers were in different time zones. We didn't have physical offices at the very beginning. Um, and that's pretty much been the case as we grew, and now we're at a little over 300 people. We're still largely remote, but we also understand that there are benefits to being in person. Um, it really just sort of depends on, on what kind of culture you want. If you really, really believe that, you know, hey, you need to be able to spend as much time, spend face time around as many people as possible, you care deeply about social connections, um, care deeply about spontaneous interactions, Maybe going maybe creating that campus with all the things you would ever need um, is the way to go. But if you care maybe more about like providing your employees a lot of flexibility in how they work, you care less about when they get in and where they are, and you care much more about the results. And you want to be able to be to have a distributed and very very diverse team you know, remote may be the way that you want to go. And if you just want a configuration of those two things, there is a happy medium. And it's something that we think about at Stack Overflow too.
1: Definitely. And, you know, obviously remote comes with some of his challenges. What are some of the challenges that you've seen in your remote days? And maybe how have you come up with solutions to combat some of those issues that you've run into?
0: So there's two things that come to mind when it comes to challenges around remote. I mean, the first is really around communication. And, you know, Everyone will say this regardless of what kind of problem, this isn't strictly to remote, but just knowing how to communicate. And um, there's a few things that we do at Stack Overflow to make sure that that's the case where, you know, communication isn't too much of a problem or at least isn't more of a problem than it would be in other situations. The first is making sure that people feel like they're on the same playing field. Um, We typically use um, chat as well as Google Hangouts or Zoom video Hangouts. Um, for a lot of our interactions when we're talking about being remote. And one of the things that we're very explicit about is that if there's one person that is remote, a lot, pretty much everyone else that's working with them is remote too. Um, and the reason that we say that is because we want them to feel on a level playing field. So when I mentioned about chat and video chat, if somebody is going to meet with somebody and have to talk with them, if chat doesn't work just because they can't type fast enough to keep up with each other, they'll jump onto a hangout. And even if you're in the same office, in the same physical space, you'll still end up getting into a hangout and being there individually on that hangout um, with the other people that are joining. The reason that we do that is because we want everyone to feel like they're on the same playing field. We, I think a lot of us have had this experience of, you know, having a bunch of people get into a conference room, putting the rest of the people that are not in that room onto you know, that speakerphone, and they're sort of just put to the side. It creates a very uneven playing field in that situation. But by making sure that we sort of enforce this idea of like, hey, if one person's remote, everyone's remote, and you communicate that way, it's a very, very powerful thing. The second challenge that comes to mind is around time zones. We have a lot of different people all over the place, people in Asia, people in Europe, um, in South America, across North America. Um, We even have some, we even have a PM that's in Hawaii with a lot of different time zones. Being able to coordinate when you actually need to get everybody into the, you know, same quote unquote room um, on a hangout or whatever is a challenge sometimes. Um, The way that we sort of have done that is just to be very, very explicit. And we over communicate what our availability is and also try to find as much overlap as we can and make sure that we're very, very clear about this is the time when we have to be synchronous and get in touch with everyone else. And then the other time is for asynchronous work. So as an example for me, when I was traveling, um, 10 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is a pretty good four-hour window almost everywhere in the world that I was traveling. Um, That's around 4 to 8 p.m. in Europe. That is 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. if you're a night owl in East Asia. Um, That's a pretty good sweet spot for a lot of the places that our employees are at if you think about that, that's four hours for all of your meetings and you can spend your other four hours being async, being on chat, writing code, looking at emails, reviewing specs. that ends up being a really great way of sort of dividing your time and making sure that there's a good balance between spending time by yourself and making sure that you have the ability to communicate with others when they need you immediately
1: and you mentioned over communication as a tactic in in keeping in keeping sure that you know you're in your top of mind in terms of other employees and making sure that everybody knows when you're online and when you're when you're offline. So overcommunication in the sense of like constantly following up with people or sending more emails or more slacks than you normally would, or how, how do you specifically overcommunicate with your employees when you are remote?
0: So when we do overcommunication, we really sort of mean, that, you know, trying to be as transparent as possible about um, how you are working, when you are available, and making sure that information is distributed across the team. So, you know, I remember one time someone coming up to me um, when, when they weren't necessarily I'm used to doing remote work and understand. Like, well, if someone is an expert at something, um, say that you know I'm the only person that knows um, about this particular feature or how this particular part of um, a web application works. Like, what happens if that person isn't available and they they're needed immediately? Um, in one sense, we over communicate because we try to make sure that uh, if you have expertise in that area, you're not you're not necessarily needed to get that knowledge. So we put a lot of emphasis on writing documentation. We put a lot of emphasis on writing emails, anything that's written and has what we call an artifact that people can sort of refer to without necessarily having that person there. That's really what we mean by open communication. And that also includes, you know, how someone is available. Um, these are the times when I'm available for meetings. This is when I'm in. This is when I'm out. This is when I'm going to have to go do this thing. Um, and if you need me, Um, You know, let me know. Otherwise, here's all the documentation and all the written stuff that you can refer to in case you absolutely need that information while I'm not here.
1: Nice. You know, I could go down the rabbit hole for a while because I, too, love remote options. I love the remote options that I have here at Andela and I love traveling around and having that type of type of flexibility. But I would love to switch gears a little bit because I know that in terms of your professional and uh, student background—it's kind of you've kind of gotten to software development maybe a non-traditional way. I know you mentioned to me previously that you have a philosophy degree from NYU, which is not necessarily the typical track that software developers take. So, I guess how did you get into the industry, and why do you think that the philosophy that you philosophy degree that you have is not necessarily indicative of the uh, computer science success that you've had?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because even today, um, after spending you know several years now. Um, as a software engineer and just working in the tech industry, it's still sort of striking to me how how I really just did not expect to become an engineer in the first place or end up coding as a profession. I mean, I started like a lot of people that are sort of in my generation and my age learning to code because it was a hobby. Um, I started when I was pretty young, I'd say around, oh, I'd say 10 or 11. and. If you remember like Myspace and Zanga, like they would let you, and GeoCities, they would let you actually put arbitrary like CSS and JavaScript into code. That's really what I tinkered with in the very beginning when I was younger. um, Trying to make blogs look good and trying to make my profiles, my social network profiles before Facebook look good.
1: We trying um, to make your top eight be your top six. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Right. How you? Yeah, I've been, there.
0: been top, there. Like fireballs, follow your cursor, all that great stuff. Like that was all really, really fun to do. Even when you're a kid, and you don't even necessarily like. You, I didn't go in knowing that. Like, oh, I need to go learn JavaScript. Let me go learn JavaScript and build a thing. It was because I wanted to tinker at the beginning, and that sort of sort of naturally grew as a hobby over the over several years. I eventually started picking up other technologies as I learned, like, hey, I want to be able to do login, or I might need this thing, like, called PHP, or I need this thing called a database, I might need to learn SQL. So this was just sort of gradually growing over time until eventually I got to college, and even then I still didn't really understand that, like, you know, this hobby that I had making websites and trying to build apps was going to be... uh, any meaningful kind of career just then, even though I knew these things were popping up around me, and I still pursued a philosophy degree. Um, It's something that I loved doing. It was something that I was really passionate about. And when I finished college, I ended up becoming a management consultant, um, really going into deeper into business. And even for that, like, you know, having a philosophy degree and then going straight into a management consulting role was not traditional on its own. But I continued just having this this, this hobby around coding. And eventually, what ended up happening with all these different side projects that I had, I guess I got pretty good. And at one point, I ended up building this app um, called Bento, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about later, um, that got extremely popular. It was a small side project that I did around curating the best coding tutorials the same way that I had learned um, when I was much younger, um, and be like, oh, gosh, what if I could just take all the, the places that I learned to code in, put it in uh, a really easy place to understand and just give it to people and put it on a website instead of people constantly asking me, like, where should I learn to code? I'll just put it up on a website and curate the best places that I know. And it went viral. It went, this, the, I built it in two days and the first uh, place I put, put it was Hacker News. It was the first time I ever posted on Hacker News and it hit number one in 30 minutes and it stayed there for a day. And I was like, oh, if it's doing this well, I posted on Reddit and I think our technology, which was still then a front page subreddit. And it hit the front page of Reddit, too, like the front front page, not just like a subreddit front page. And it was number nine. So front page on both of those on the same day. And then that's when Stack Overflow reached out to me the next day. And before I knew it, I was a software engineer um, at Stack Overflow. I almost fell into this profession and this career.
1: That's incredible, and and considering you're definitely not alone in that because 90% of Stack Overflow Survey respondents consider themselves at least partially self-taught, and do you think that's because... The educational systems traditionally in our four-year colleges aren't as robust, or at least maybe they're becoming more robust and people kind of feel like they need to take it upon themselves to learn these skills independently? Or do you think that it's just the nature of the business is constantly trying to take on new tasks and new new languages and that in itself makes people consider themselves self-taught?
0: I think there's a number of different things. I mean, the first thing that I'll say and, and something that I say a lot of to uh, to people that are just learning to code is that I actually, a lot of people think that being a developer, your main job is just to write code and to know how to write code and do it well. I actually think that you can go one level deeper than that. And your job as a developer is actually to learn really, really well. If you talk to most developers, you know, I think that they would say that my job is not necessarily to know the answer to every Programming question right off the bat, they won't be able to be like, "Here's a problem," and they'll know immediately what to do and just start writing it. But what they will tell you is that they'll understand. I know at least where to start looking and start researching and learn how to solve this problem. Um, you know, it's part of why Stack Overflow is such a huge success is because it has a lot of those answers for you. Um, It's why people say that, like, you know, a lot of the time coding is, you know, 20 percent actually writing stuff and 80 percent fixing your own mistakes and trying to find the answers to how to fix those mistakes. Um, so learning is a really core part of the profession in a way that I think a lot of people sort of overlook. And when you're thinking about, like, well, why are more and more people becoming self-taught? I think people are understanding that that that, that concept more that you don't necessarily need a, say, four year degree program in order to learn how to code and how to build something. You know, I, I tend to think of there sort of being three really large paths to becoming a developer. One of them you've already mentioned, which is just the four-year degree program, is the one that most people think of. But for those people, they come out with a rather academic understanding um, of computer science and they may not necessarily understand you know, how to build a web app. You have a second path, which is people that are going to say like boot camps, right? Or places that are very intensive uh, programs to learn how to code, you know, do that within 12 weeks. But then they come out of that and like, oh, I don't even know what algorithms and data structures are. So they feel that they're short um, on that. And then you have this third group of people, which are uh, largely consider themselves self-taught, or they did had neither a degree program and no formal education in even a boot camp. And they come out of that feeling like they know how to build stuff, but they just don't understand sort of the overall concepts and that they didn't have that infrastructure there. Um, But there's a huge amount of resources for all three of those different paths that are just freely available on Stack Overflow, on the resources that I curate on Bento. They're all over the place, and because more and more people are interested in becoming to learn learning how to code, they're finding that those resources are readily available to them, regardless of what access they have.
1: So then, I guess, what would be your recipe for? being the best software developer that you possibly can be? Would it be a combination of those three? Would it be relying heavily more on, you know, self-taught stuff? Would it be maybe getting a software development degree and then honing your skills in a self-taught form? Or what do you think the best recipe for that would be?
0: It really depends on how you best learn. Like I said before, being a software developer is, I think one of the core skills that you can understand is understanding how you best learn and what is the best way that you can problem solve. Um, again, because most of your job as a as a software developer isn't knowing the answers immediately but trying to do the research and understanding how to debug a problem and figure that out and a lot of that requires a lot of introspection in terms of understanding how you best learn. So you know for me, I think that I, I like the idea of there being more and more largely self-taught developers and there's the the reason I think about that is mostly around one it, it really, drives you in terms of like what your actual day-to-day is going to be like um, when you're a software developer. You don't necessarily have a professor that you can go to or an instructor that you can go to. You may have mentors, but a lot of the time, what you're going to be doing when you are coding as a professional developer, you're going to be Googling and then coming to a Stack Overflow answer or going to documentation or find a tutorial on, say, Bento or some other place where you might have heard about it. That's what you're going to be spending most of your time doing. And if you learn the way that a self-taught dev largely does, where you're Googling, you're looking for stuff, and you're researching, that's really the environment that you're going to be in a lot of the time. Um, you can accelerate that if you'd like to by going into more formal programs like boot camps, like computer science. But in the end, I think most people will end up doing some form of self-taught learning. That's why I think that you know 90% or more of those people at least consider themselves partially self-taught. The other reason why I think that you know self-taught development is also a really fascinating um, sort of route to go is because it's, there's there's just so much access, right? Um, I learned how to code on the internet. We didn't have Stack Overflow then. We didn't re- people didn't really understand how the internet was going to become a huge huge thing even then. I mean, a few people did, but not as many people now. Um, and you know, if if there is this understanding that, you know, software is going to be eating the world, that there's going to be more developers that are going to be needed, that everything is going to require software, or at least the vast majority of things are going to require software. You know, a four-year degree program that may cost you a lot of money um, isn't necessarily the best way to get everybody to become a developer, or at least the uh, enough people to become developers as we, as we would need. To provide those educational resources to as many people as possible and give them an accessible path that doesn't cost them much money, but is still well curated, would be the dream. Um, I hope that more people understand that being self-taught is, one, the way that a lot of your day-to-day is like as a developer, but two, it's also... The easiest way in terms of the the amount of resources and how much access you can get to that educational information,
1: definitely. And so I guess I guess one of the main takeaways then from from this chat would be that, allowing people the flexibility in terms of working remote and then also not judging somebody if they have a CS degree or not is the best way to incite and get more people into software development that maybe wouldn't have had a traditional avenue of getting into the industry. And that's not necessarily indicative of their success because they could be brilliant. They just might not be able to be in a place where they can either afford a typical degree or just be in the same location as an institution that would provide that to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I- I'm very much of this, uh, of this understanding that you know capability, talent, um, genius is really distributed pretty much evenly across um, geography, income, et cetera. It's just that the opportunity is not distributed, right? There are certain areas in the world where it's easier to get a CS degree if you are in one particular class, background, area than it is in one other. But if you are to, you know, it, it, it's, you know, the responsibility, I think, of people that are in this industry are the people that really want to, you know, create more developers in the world to try to democratize that kind of educational access to as many people as possible. And remote and providing self-taught resources to the world um, when it comes to coding and learning how to code is probably one of the best tools um, for making that reality.
1: That's awesome. And how, if people want to keep up with you and Bento and Stack Overflow, what's the best possible way to do that? Do you have a, a Twitter or anything like that where they can keep up with your travels and, and the latest with those two um, products?
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you, The best way to get in touch with me is actually through Twitter. So if you just go to John H.M. Chan, um, you can find me there. If you just Google John Chan, I think I'm still, I think I might be the second Google result now, especially if you like Google Bento on that or Stack Overflow after that. So if you want to keep up with me, yeah, Google John
1: Chan, definitely look up Bento at bento.io and at Stack Overflow, I'll be around. Man, the second person up on Google, that's some great SEO right there. Yeah, Good stuff. When uh... you're talking about
0: like John Chan being a really, really generic Asian American name. <laughs> like, that's one of the more
1: proud things out there, yeah. <laughs> oh that's awesome alright well where is next on your travels you're in LA right now you said where's next
0: yeah LA then I'll be in New York after this going back home and then after that I'm spending two months in Asia a month in Europe and then we'll see where the travels take me next
1: hey awesome alright well best of luck on your travels and thanks so much for joining the show we really appreciate it All right. thank you so much Justin